Well, there are consistently many ideas I wish to share with you folks on Sunday mornings. The task of having to come up with topics about a month ahead of time so that they can get published in the newsletter is really uncomfortable for me. Because a lot happens between then and when it's time for that sermon to roll around. Well, uh, that being as it may, not too long ago, my son Noah said to me, Mama, you really need to do a sermon on the golden rule. Because some people think it means do to others what they did to you. Well, unfortunately, that's the way that some people in the world live that out, but I don't really know how many of them believe that's the way it started or was intended. Um, But it was a topic. It went to print, so here we are. (laughs) The ethic of reciprocity is the same thing as the golden rule, only it's a broader version of that. And it didn't sound quite as cliché to me. Um, Not at all to trivialize um, that sentiment. But there's nothing particularly original about it, so why talk about it now? Uh, An ethic is a system or a principle that governs moral behavior or acceptable behavior. Something that tells people how they're supposed to act. Like it or not, societies have to have those things or we just kind of fall into pandemonium. And even though we don't like people telling us what to do, there are things that we have to assume about each other in order to coexist. Reciprocity is a relationship of mutual dependence or action or uh, influence. One action affects another. This is contingent on that. Um, Things won't work unless there's some kind of a shared agreement. I can't imagine being able to trace the origin of whoever it was that first called the golden rule the golden rule. You're not going to find that in any of the uh, religious texts that echo that sentiment. As offered in the King James Version of the Bible, it reads, Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. 400 years later and a bit modified, the version we hear most often is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Now, I'm not really sure how current unto is. I don't hear that conversationally very often. But the idea is a good one, right? And if you've grown up in the United States... It's quite likely that you've had some, you've heard some version of it your whole life, with or without a religious upbringing. Surely by now we get it. We all try our best not to do things that'll hurt other people. Certainly not intentionally. And I'm I'm sure we all do one thing or another to try to help others, too. 
It would seem to be as common an idea as concrete and not much harder to understand. So what could possibly be new about this now? Well, doing research for this, I ran on to an article by a woman named Karen Armstrong. Karen is a, a, a well-respected religious scholar. I had to read some of her books when I was doing religious studies at Centenary. She's a British author and also a former Catholic nun. She's long held the belief that all of the great traditions of the world are trying to say the same thing. They just say it in different ways. That they have a common emphasis on the overriding importance of compassion as the prime religious duty. During their religious, their world religion studies here at the church, our children are taught that the golden rule is a part of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Brahmanism, Confucianism, the Baha'i faith, humanism, Jainism, Native American spirituality, the pagan religion, Shinto, Sikhism, Sufism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, and Wicca. It's also part of the philosophies of Plato, Kant, Seneca, and Socrates. The Confucian version is, do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. Armstrong, Karen Armstrong, credits Confucius with being the first one to frame it this way. But... The Jewish reference from Leviticus um, goes back 900 years before Confucius, or at least that's the estimate. Um, And that would be love your neighbor as yourself, just as one expression in the Jewish tradition. If compassion is central to every one of the world religions, then why are religions so often associated instead with violence and intolerance. In her article, Karen Armstrong wrote, People don't even seem to know what compassion is. They imagine that it means to feel pity for somebody. Whereas the root meaning of the Greco-Latin word is to feel with the other. Realizing at a profound level that we share the same human predicament. This is a crucial time when we are bound together politically, economically, and electronically as never before. But we have rarely been more perilously divided. This is why, I'm still quoting Karen Armstrong, this is why we have launched a charter for compassion. During the next few days, this, this, art, this article was written Friday. During the next few days, millions of Jews, Christians, and Muslims worldwide will be invited to comment stage by stage on a draft charter on a multilingual website 
Later, a council of inspirational thinkers representing the different faiths will examine their findings and write the final version. Finally, there will be a large signing ceremony. The charter will not just be a statement of intent, but will call for practical action, asking preachers, for example, to emphasize the importance of good interfaith relations, calling upon scholars to examine the difficult passages of their scriptures. What? Asking the leaders of every faith to examine the difficult parts of their scriptures. And asking educators to find ways of presenting compassion to the young as a dynamic and attractive ideal. How do you do that? I asked my son. He said, oh, that's something you learn with maturity. (laughs) And I thought to myself, if we're lucky. This is new. This charter of compassion is the first, it's the first time in history that I know of that the golden rule has been used to make a frame in which all those puzzle pieces we talk about, you know, each religion having one, and when you put them together, you get a better sense of the whole picture. But this is a frame that all of us have in common that maybe we can lay the pieces into so that we actually figure out what the shape of it is. I find that very exciting, just as a possibility, if nothing else. There's so many subtleties that are wrapped up in this idea, though. You know, taken with the positive language that the Christian version presents, of which tells us, do unto others, how do we know that what we would do, because that's what we want, is what is agreeable with somebody else? I mean, if I say... All I want is to be left alone. So I leave everybody alone, but somebody I'm leaving alone is drowning. Is that practicing compassion? I know that's kind of an extreme example, but is that following the golden rule? We just can't assume that our preferences suit other people. Okay, so if we work at being particularly considerate, does that take care of it? Well, let me answer that this way. Within the last couple of weeks, I took a literacy uh, training course. And we had a speaker that I would like, actually, to have come speak to us here sometime about cultural um, differences. But she explained 
that conversationally, if you I know a lot of you have traveled far more than I have, and you may already understand all of this, but if you're dealing with Japanese people, well, let me start this way. In American culture, it's polite when someone finishes talking to wait one heartbeat before you respond or begin talking. If two heartbeats go by, we get nervous. We want to fill the space with something. We might feel that we haven't been understood, or so we start trying to explain further. In Japanese culture, what's polite is waiting for heartbeats. So when Americans and Japanese come together and try to work together, uh, an American might explain something, and waiting for a response from someone who's Japanese, one doesn't come fast enough, so they think they need to explain again or offer some more information. When the conversation is over or the meeting is over, the Americans think, gosh, they just really didn't get it. And the Japanese people are thinking, they're so rude I couldn't get a word in edgewise. In, other, in that culture also, I was told in this class that the way of building businesses is to work from consensus. They start at the bottom up. Every single decision begins with consensus on one level, then moves to the next level where they have to get consensus before it goes on beyond that. So that when the process is finished, even though it takes six months, Everybody in the process has ownership. What she contrasted with that was, in America, business decisions start at the top. They go down. People have to accept them. Often they get displeased with the way that it's come down, and it takes them six months to get over it. Before, before they've moved on and are ready to, you know, just accept it like it is. Well, which model is preferable? But these are, these are our habits of the ways that we deal with things, and that's acceptable behavior here. Those, again, are extreme examples, but it's just showing that what feels right to us and what seems absolutely appropriate may not be. So the do-unto-others model might not be the best one. The Christian tradition is not the only model that has it in a positive do uh, framework. I don't want to use that word there, but I lost another one. So uh, Many of the other traditions present it in don't do harm. Or if it would hurt you, don't do it to someone else. I would suggest that the negative language of do not cause pain or harm is potentially a better approach and a better way to learn about compassion. It's often hard for us to see just how we hurt other people. Uh, our behaviors are ingrained with us. 
And because we're used to them, it seems like other people would be used to them too. And that also makes it hard for us to hear people if they try to tell us that something we're doing is being painful. What we have to do to begin to address that pain that we might be causing others is notice our own. And the way that we notice that is start paying attention to every time we have a gesture. Like if we get uncomfortable and we straighten our jacket or scratch our head or uh, rub our hands together uh, or... uh, Get up and start working. Not that it's a bad thing to do, but if we're doing it because we're uncomfortable, it's cloaking something that's painful for us. And all of those things that we cloak in ourselves that are painful for us are also things that we carry around and hurt other people with. So in order to live into this compassion, we have to find those things within ourselves, apply that compassion to ourselves first, identify them, sit with them as painful as it can be. I want to share a story that uh, a Buddhist nun told in one of her books about how one uh, approaches their fears. Once there was a young warrior. Her teacher told her that she had to do battle with fear. She didn't want to do that. It seemed too aggressive. It was scary. It seemed unfriendly. But the teacher said she had to do it and gave her the instructions for the battle. The day arrived, the student warrior stood on one side and the fear stood on the other side. The warrior was feeling very small and fear was looking big and wrathful. They both had their weapons. The young warrior roused herself and went toward the fear, prostrated three times, and asked, May I have permission to go into battle with you? Fear said, thank you for showing me so much respect that you ask my permission. Then the warrior said, how can I defeat you? Fear replied, my weapons are that I talk fast and I get very close to your face. Then you get completely unnerved and you get you do whatever I say. If you don't do what I tell you, I have no power. You can listen to me and you can have respect for me. You can even be convinced by me. But if you don't do what I say, I have no power. In that way, the student warrior learned how to defeat fear. Pima children goes on to say that's exactly how it works. You have to have respect.
for the things that you fear and the things that are painful. But because we have a basic understanding of how they move us to run in circles, we can refrain from the actions that we would take to be avoidant, to contribute to the habits that keep us numb and blind to ourselves and therefore less compassionate in the world than we would be. There has to become some kind of respect for the jitters, some understanding of how they move us, and of the unacknowledged emotions that are our monsters, the monsters under our own bed. So the way for us to become truly compassionate is to dare to conquer ourselves with compassion. Beyond the pain is the source of life. The boundless all of which we are a part and which we learn not to fear. When we stop hurting ourselves, we stop hurting others. Compassion abounds because we stop acting compassionately and become compassionate. We feel with others, not just because we're in the same predicament, but because we recognize them in ourselves. We can recognize the pain they're having as the pain that we have moved through. In the book of Matthew in the Christian Testament, quoting the Hebrew Testament, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the whole of the law and the prophets. That's exactly what Confucius said. Incidentally, atheists and agnostics are invited also to participate in this project. There's a website and there's a place you can post things you want to contribute. I can give that to you if you if you have thoughts you want to share to help this project. Love yourself enough to be compassionate. Ease your pain so that you can ease others' pain so that this world may feel our compassion.